One of the sources of encouragement, uh, besides looking at Christ and being reminded of his presence with us, encouragement and edification uh, for me, biographies. They, uh, biographies, especially of Christian men, uh, Christian heroes, encourage me to learn about their life, about the convictions that they've had, about, about challenges that great leaders have faced. Uh, biographies also reveal blemishes uh, that leaders have and how they have dealt with them. Uh, I'm currently reading a biography on uh, William Tyndale, and there's so much uh, that, uh, that we can learn from this man whom the Lord has used to translate uh, the Bible from the original Greek and, and Hebrew into a common English at that time. And Tyndale, as a result of his work and his conviction of the importance of translating the Bible in an English language that was a common language of the people, as a result of that conviction, Tyndale ended up being burned to the stake. There's so much to learn from biographies. One of the ones that I'm looking forward to read after Tyndale is on Charles Simeon. And I'll tell you more about Charles Simeon uh, later in the sermon. But this morning we are going to look at uh, two kings in the scripture. Uh, one is a king elect. The other is a king rejected who does not want to let go of his throne. And we'll see today that both kings have blemishes. Yet the way they respond to the Lord and the way they respond to God's people in spite of their blemishes creates a world of difference between them. It's not the absence of sin that differentiates these two kings. It's rather how they respond to the Lord and his people in the midst of their sin that marks a big difference between them. This morning, we're going to look at a tale of two kings, and I invite you to open God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 21 and chapter 22. We'll be reading both chapters together, uh, because these two chapters really are telling one story. Let's open God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 21. We'll be reading from verse 1 to chapter 22, uh, the end of the chapter, verse 23. Here's God's Word for us this morning. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one is with you? And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then... What do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, and, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread 
for there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doag the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you have struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in, the, in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please, let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered, and the men were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait. As at this day. Then answered Doag the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul 
I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, and he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. And the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all his father's house. The priests who were at Nob and all of them came to the king, and Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitab. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is a king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first day, first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doag, You turn and strike the priests. And Doag the Edomite turned and struck the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David, And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day, when Doag the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life, seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of his word and our hearts as we hear. Father, as we have heard your word read, and as we stand to hear it proclaimed, we pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit to be with us. Speak to our hearts. Open our hearts. Enable us to hear, cause us to respond in a way that honors you, in a way that draws us closer to you, in trust, in dependence on you, in reliance upon you for the name of Jesus Christ, for his sake and glory. Amen. A tale of two kings. In these two chapters, David's escape from the service of Saul is permanent. The scenes in these two chapters are uh, not very easy to make sense of. 
One may rightly wonder, what are we supposed to understand and take from these two scenes, from these two chapters? And there are two elements in particular that show that both chapters belong together uh, as one complex story. On one side is the element of repetition of a cluster of words that we hear repeated often in these two chapters. And uh, it's these repetitions of, of words that, that make the, the story move along. These words are things like, David came, David rose and fled, David departed and escaped, David went from there. The repetition of these words show that David's life from this moment on is a life of a wanderer, one who is no longer in a stable and safe place to live in, even though he's in his own land. Twice in these chapters, David flees to foreign lands. He's called by God to be the next king, but we see his life as a life of a wanderer, a life of a, of a man who has no place to rest his head and live in safety in his own land. Uh, we know that chapter 21 marks David's official leave from Saul because in chapter 21, verse 10, the author tells us, and David rose and fled that day from Saul. But before David fled from Saul, David stopped by the priest at Nob to ask for provisions. And the encounter between David and the priest at Nob uh, whose name is Ahimelech, is so significant that Ahimelech shows up again for the second time in chapter 22. Uh, and he's summoned by Saul, the king. And these two scenes involving Ahimelech is a second major element that keep these two chapters together as one complex story and unit. In these chapters, both David and Saul deal with Ahimelech who is a priest of the Lord. Yet David and Saul deal with Ahimelech in very different ways. With David, Ahimelech becomes a source of refreshment and provision. With Saul, Ahimelech seems to appear as a source of threat to his kingship. And Ahimelech is going to be cut off and killed. He and his entire household 85 priests, and all their families and possessions and their city. These are really dark chapters in the story of 1 Samuel. Saul's anger against the priests of the Lord proves that Saul knows no limit. Saul is showing us how far he has turned and gone from the Lord. That he would dare to treat the priests of the Lord, with such, such brutality. But in the massacre at Nob, there's someone else who escapes and flees and is on the run. Not just David, but now it's a new character who appears at the end of chapter 22. His name is Abiathar, one of the sons of Ahimelech. He too escapes from the anger of Saul 
And where does he go? He flees after David to join David. And the author of 1 Samuel wants us to see the growing gap between these two kings, between David and Saul. David, the king elect, and Saul, the king reject. These two characters help us realize how far apart these two kings are from each other, not in terms of geography, but in how they relate to the Lord and to his people. A tale of two kings, a complicated story, a long story. And today, because this story is a little longer, today we will focus on the first part that zooms on David. Lord willing, next, next week we will look at the second part which zooms on Saul. The focus on David today has two major points. If you like taking notes, here are the two points that will focus on David today. David's weakness and despair on one side. David's weakness and despair. And second, the Lord's provision for David. The Lord's provision for David. Let's look at David's weakness and despair. David's flight from Saul start off with uh, two troubling steps. And we see these troubling steps, both of them in chapter 21. The first troubling step is David's visit to Ahimelech, the priest. Now, Ahimelech was serving at Nob, a priestly dwelling where most of the priests or a significant number of the priests in Israel were all living together. Nob is about two miles away from Jerusalem. We might even consider it a little suburb of Jerusalem. It was a priestly center in Israel because apparently that was a place where the priests observed the law of the bread of the presence of the Lord. So it was likely that the tabernacle from the from Shiloh, at the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, may have been moved to Nob, where the priests were. And, and Ahimelech is the son of Ahitab, who was the brother of Ichabod, one of the grandsons of Eli. And prior to this day, David sought help from Samuel and then from Jonathan. And to both of them, David was able to tell them openly and plainly what Saul has done against David. And that David was in danger at the hands of Saul. But with Ahimelech, David does not feel the same degree of openness and safety. So David does not reveal to Ahimelech the real reason why he's there. Ahimelech asks David why he's alone. David fabricates an answer to keep Ahimelech in the dark as to the real reason, which is that David is really running away from Saul. Now, we don't know why David is not revealing to Ahimelech that he's alone. Commentators suggest a variety of explanations. Perhaps David is unsure if he can trust Ahimelech. Ahimelech's brother was also a priest. His name was Ahijah. Ahijah was also the, the son of Ahitab. And we met Ahijah in chapter 14 of the book, when Saul fought the Philistines, and Ahijah was Saul's priest. 
Perhaps Ahimelech was also loyal to Saul enough to inform Saul about David's visit. Perhaps for these reasons, David prefers to give a cryptic and deceptive answer to Ahimelech. Look at David's answer in verse 2. And David said to Ahimelech, the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. Now, it's not rocket science for us to figure out that no matter how cryptic David tried to keep his answer, David, David, David's answer is a fabrication that keeps or seeks to keep Ahimelech in the dark. It's true that David was on a mission, but it was not the mission of King Saul. Rather, David was on a mission that God sent him on. Remember Jonathan, how he framed David's flee in the previous chapter, chapter 20, Jonathan said to David in verse 22, Then go, for the Lord has sent you away. David is on a mission. David has no idea what the Lord's will is for David. Yet David's words were not merely cryptic. David's words were also deceptive. Speaking in such a way that caused Ahimelech to be at ease and not assume that anything is going wrong between David and King Saul. Now, being cryptic is one thing. But taking the step of deception and speaking words that look pretty clearly as deceiving, that is not correct. That is not right. Did David's crisis of needing to flee to protect his own life warrant such a deceptive action? This is where Bible interpreters uh, debate and offer different views. Some are inclined to think that since David is running away to save his life, this deceptive action can be understood um, and accepted and, and given a pass only in such a life-threatening scenario. Other Bible interpreters consider David's action to be a blemish at this moment in the journey. I'm inclined to believe that David's deception with Ahimelech is a blemish in this case. Yet David, yes, David is seeking to cover up all his traces, to be cryptic. That may not be the problem. That may be totally understood, but but the way he goes about it is not commendable. And it's definitely not a pass for us to speak deceptively. Now, the writer of 1 Samuel could have skipped this detail and simply tell us about David's request for bread and Ahimelech's offer to give him the bread. But the author is including this dialogue, perhaps, at least this is my personal interpretation, perhaps to show us that David begins this journey as a fugitive with weaknesses. And it's not merely the, the physical weaknesses of his needs and of his, of his danger, but with weaknesses, with a weakness of, of shading the truth. If this is a reason why this detail is included here in the story, it's an example for us that the Bible does not hide the blemishes of God's people. 
even of its human heroes, even of the king elect. In the midst of fear and despair, my dear friends, we are more prone to sin. And we see that here in the life of David. Dear saint, take from this moment in David's life, take it not as a pass to be deceptive, but as a caution and a warning. Times of weakness, times of desperation make us more vulnerable to sin, to find ways of escape that may not be right. And the history of God's people, the history of the church is filled with great heroes of the faith. Yet each of them, if you look into their lives deep enough, each of them also have had weaknesses that we are not proud of. Don't let their blemishes cause you to think that you can get a pass on fighting your sin. And don't let their blemishes make you stop learning from them in their good parts. It would not be, or it would be easy for us to say, wow, David, you just deceived the priest. I'm tuning you out. I can't follow you any longer. That answer would be a mistake. Learn to be open to let the example of others encourage you in godliness, even when you discover that their parts of their lives that are blemished. Don't overreact just because you see inconsistency in someone. God can still be at work in someone even when they react poorly or wrongly in a particular case. Can God act in people's lives even though they might react poorly or wrongly in a particular case? Absolutely, God can. And we must keep our eyes open to how God works, even in the lives of his saints who carry on blemishes. But do not take from this that we can get a pass in in living in blemishes and with blemishes, or that we can get a pass in tuning them out. One One of the men that I look forward to read after I'm done with the biography of William Tyndale is Charles Simeon. He's a pastor in 18th century England. He pastored there through extreme difficulties. The first 10 years of his pastorate, the church did not allow him to preach in the evenings in his own church. And even in the mornings, though he was allowed to preach, the church leadership committee locked all the pews so that people could not come and sit and enjoy hearing the sermons of Charles Simeon. They would have to sit standing in the aisles or sit outside with with the windows open so they can hear the sermons because this man was not accepted by the leadership of the church, even though people in town would come to hear him preach. And he stayed in that church to pastor for 52 years. I'm looking forward to hear to and read his biography because he is known to be a pastor who has gone through extreme difficulties 
as a pastor and yet persevered and endured. But as I've gotten to hear and learn a little bit about Charles Simeon, not from reading his biographies, but from others who have spoken about him, I have also learned that he also had some blemishes. Even though he, he was a pastor who dealt with a lot of difficulties caused by others for his pastoral ministry, he also encountered difficulties from his own heart. And here's, this is what I heard from John Piper, as John Piper gave a summary of the life of, of Charles Simeon, Simeon. Here's how Piper described uh, the challenges that Charles Simeon experienced. He said, and these are now, quote, Piper's words, the most fundamental trial that Simeon had, and that we all have, was himself. He had a somewhat harsh and self-assertive air about him. One day, early in Simeon's ministry, he was visiting Henry Venn, who was pastor 12 miles from Cambridge at Yelling. When he left to go home, Venn's daughters complained to their father about his manner, about Charles Simeon's manner with Venn. And Venn took the girls to the backyard and said, Pick me one of those peaches. But it was early summer, and the time of peaches was not yet. They asked why he would want the green, unripe fruit. Venn replied, Well, my dears, it is green now, and we must wait. But a little more sun and a few more showers and the peach will be ripe and sweet. So it is with Mr. Simeon. What a gracious response. From a pastor about this other pastor, fellow colleague. Friends, look at what appears to be blemishes in others and let them not cause you to tune someone out but consider them as signs of an unfinished area in, in the lives of those that you see blemishes in that the Lord is still working on. David's first weakness is that he seemed or appeared to say the truth, at least seems to me, as he began this journey as a wanderer. He started off on a wrong foot, not because Saul caused him all the trouble, but because he responded poorly as he talked to Ahimelech. A second weakness that we see in David is, is the desperation to flee to enemy territory. The desperation to flee to enemy territory. In verses 10 through 15, we see David go uh, to Achish, king of Gath, and soon he realizes that he ran into a, a dangerous situation. It's un unclear what would cause David to run to the king of Gath. Now you say, why is it a big deal that, that, he would, that we would look at this fact that he ran to the king of Gath? Can you think where we've heard the name Gath before in the book of 1 Samuel? This is, by the way, this is one of the benefits of, of doing expository preaching. You don't just parachute into a, into a chapter without understanding what has been going on in a book. Gath 
is the hometown of Goliath. And the irony here is that David is running to Gath with the sword of Goliath. I mean, David, what are you thinking? You're thinking to get some favor from the king of the hometown whose hero you have slain? Are you kidding me, David? But he somehow, and I don't understand, I look forward to ask David what was going on in his mind, in his logic. And the only explanation I can, I can think of for the moment is desperation. Desperation. A lack of clear thinking in, under such pressures is understandable. Is it possible that David thought that he could find shelter with a king who was an enemy of Saul? We don't know exactly David's logic. But during his visit to Gath, the king's servants recognized David's identity. Dave, the Philistines recognized that this is a man who is greater than King Saul. David realized that he is in really deep and, and hot waters. Look at verse 12. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish and the king of Gath. David's way of escape is to pretend that he is insane. So he acts as a madman. And this plan, apparently the Lord used uh, to cause the king of Gath, Achish, to release David and to let him go. Akish simply did not want to mess with an apparently insane prisoner, no matter how important he seemed to be. The Lord protected David from this trap that he walked into himself out of desperation, perhaps. And we know that David gives full credit for this escape. The Lord gives, uh, David gives full credit for this escape, not to his ingenuity to, to, to pretend like someone else, David gives full credit to the Lord for rescuing him from the hands of the Philistines. You know how we know that? Because he wrote two psalms. Not one, two. And on the occasion of this escape. Psalm 34 and Psalm 56. Friends, sometimes in our own desperation, we make choices that lead us into great dangers, greater dangers. In times of desperation, our thinking may be vulnerable, be on guard. And even if we find ourselves in greater trouble because of our choices, seek the Lord in those troubles. He will give you wisdom what to do. What both of these events in chapter 21 have in common is that they include details that reveal how David started this journey as a fugitive from Saul with blemishes and with wrong turns. And the key point here is to understand that it's not the absence of such blemishes that makes someone great. The difference between David and Saul is not the absence of blemishes between them. Instead, it's one's choices or one's choice whether or not to turn to the Lord in the midst of such blemishes. And this is why David is so different than Saul. As we will see through these two experiences, David will learn some great lessons, which he will record in the Psalms that he has written on this occasion. But let's see how the Lord continues to sustain David 
and how the Lord, how David sought the Lord even while limping as he began these, this journey of a fugitive. Point number two, we see God's favor and provisions for David. God's favor and provisions for David. Even though David started with the wrong foot twice as he began this journey of a fugitive, nevertheless, the Lord showed David great favor. And we see five ways the Lord showed David favor, even as he started on the wrong foot. Five provisions. The first provision is the provisions of, or, or the first provision is essential provisions that David needed for the journey. Essential provisions that David needed for the journey. A bread, or bread, a weapon, and prayer. The bread was not common bread, but holy bread. The bread of the presence of the Lord. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 24, it was required by the Lord that only the priests would eat that bread that had been in the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle. But now Ahimelech gives David the bread to eat. And interestingly, this event is used by Jesus in the book of Matthew, chapter 12, to explain to the Pharisees who are attacking Jesus, to explain to the Pharisees why Jesus is eating and allowing his disciples to, to gather grains from the field and eat them on the Sabbath day. The Pharisees were attacking and, and pursuing Jesus, trying to find fault with Jesus. And the answer or the place Jesus takes them is the story between Ahimelech and David. Let me just read this to you from Matthew 12, verses 1 through 4. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? How is Jesus using the example of Ahimelech and David? Jesus is implying that if the priest gave David to eat from the forbidden bread, how much more can Jesus and his disciples eat on the Sabbath since Jesus is greater than David? Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And since Jesus is Lord even over the Sabbath, Jesus is assuming that the story about David and Ahimelech is actually a, step, a stepping stone to show the, the greatness of Jesus himself. Jesus is the greater king to which David pointed to. What Ahimelech did was right in the sight of God. The Lord used Ahimelech to provide David with bread supply he needed as he began his journey as a wanderer. And this bread was special in that the, before David ate from it, this bread was in the presence of the Lord. It's as if the Lord is saying to David, David, I'm going to provide for you the bread that was first in my presence. The Lord also provided David a sword. And it was not just any sword. Uh, first of all, let me clear, rem remind you, swords at this time among the Israelites were a rare thing. The sword of David 
that he received on this day is a sword of Goliath. What a reminder to David of God's provision for his people in the past. Surely the sword would be a token to David of God's faithfulness in extremely difficult circumstances. And finally, Ahimelech also sent David off by praying for him. When Saul calls Ahimelech to account, the item that gets most attention is not the food provision nor the sword, but why Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for David. Now remember that David is also the one who wrote most of our psalms. And yet David needs the priest of the Lord to inquire for him on his behalf. Oh friend, if David, who wrote the Psalms, needed prayer support of others, especially of, from the Lord's servants, how much more do we need prayer support from others? Through Ahimelech, the Lord provided for David these three essential supplies as he began his journey as a fugitive. Food, a special food, a sword, a special sword, and prayer. Each of these were tokens of God's presence and faithfulness to David. A second provision that the Lord gives David is the assurance that David is the king elect. A second assurance that a second provision is the assurance that David is a king elect. As dangerous as a trap was to run to the king of, of Gath, the author wants us to know that the foreigners, the Philistines, are the first ones to publicly recognize David as the king. 1 Samuel 21:11. But the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David the king of the land? Friends, if you've been reading with us uh, the book of 1 Samuel, you know that the, to- the moment, the chapter when David was elected or, or anointed as king, it's all been a secret endeavor. It's all been kept a secrecy. This is the first time in the book where someone else publicly shouts out and makes it known that David is the king of the land. And who is it that makes this announcement? It's the Philistines. It's God's enemies. So despite the fact that David ran into a trap out of his own despair, the Lord gave him confirmation and assurance that he's the one. He's the king. Friends, do you have the eyes to see what the Lord wants to assure you of, even in the midst of troubles that you might be facing? A third provision that the Lord gives David is an army. In chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, from David flees from Gath to a cave, the cave of Adullam. And here we read that people are beginning to come to David. First, it's his entire family, perhaps for support for David, but also, surely, also because of their realization that perhaps their own lives are going to be at risk and in danger from Saul as well. But notice what the author wants to highlight, that a crowd was beginning to grow around David and that David became their commander. The Lord is providing, raising up an army for David, even though he's not recruiting anybody by himself. He's a fugitive, and yet the Lord is providing 
He's providing an army for David, but notice who are the first ones enlisted in the army. Look at verse, chapter 22, verse 2. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. What a DNA for a starting of an army. People who were in distress. People who had been in debt, which meant they had to sell themselves to someone else's services, most likely. People who were bitter in soul. Another word for people who were in deep pain and inner affliction. This is how David's army started. They were not graduates of West Point Academy. But yet it is with such a people that the Lord is is rallying up an army around David. David is in distress. But he does not turn on a pity party. Though he himself is in distress, the Lord sends him help. And the help that he has from the Lord would not be impressive in the eyes of the world. But nevertheless, they feel safe with David, and he becomes their commander. And this chapter closes with one of those fugitives who turns to flee after David. And David tells to him, with me you shall be in safekeeping. The Lord provides an army for David and provides David with a favor of of peace and safety to grant to those who follow him. The fourth provision that the Lord gives David is safety for his parents. Not only favor with the army to give them a sense that they are safe with him, but also favor for his parents. David realizes that his parents cannot handle all the risks and the challenges associated with, with David's unknown and risky runaway from Saul. So David goes to another foreign king. This time it's a king of Moab. Wow, David, didn't you learn a lesson from going to a foreign king, Gath? This time perhaps the, the details of, of who he's going to are a little different. Remember who David's father was? Jesse. Remember who Jesse's father was? Obed. Remember who Obed's father was? Boaz. Remember who Boaz was married to? Ruth. Remember who Ruth was? A Moabite. David is taking his parents, Jesse and his wife, and perhaps some other extended family, to the Moabites. Perhaps he thought that the ancestor line through Moab might offer some grace and some favor. And indeed, the Lord uses whatever means. The Lord uses the Moabites to provide shelter for David's parents during this time of of unknown and, and risk. But we see here in David the highlight that he goes out of his way to ensure that his parents are taken care of and in safety. David realizes that even though others are finding safety with him, he has limited abilities to keep his parents in safety 
He's a king who goes out of his way to take care of his parents, even though he himself is a fugitive. He shows responsibility for his parents and seeks for them a place of safety. But notice also that David's heart about his, in, this entire new season, while in Moab, David says to the king of Moab, till I know what God will do for me. He does not say, till I figure out what I will do. No, he says, till I figure out what the Lord will do for me. And this shows clearly that David, even though he started off with some weaknesses and some missteps in the journey, his heart is getting back right with the Lord. His heart is turning back in trust to the Lord. He says, till I know what the Lord will do for me. What a trust in the Lord. David knows that this is not his battle. David knows that the Lord has to come through on this journey for him. David is dependent on the Lord to come through. And he speaks to the king of Moab and speaks to him of the confidence he has in the Lord. Wow. And the Lord provides David fifthly with another provision, a final provision. Direction where to go. Direction where to go. Chapter 22, verse 5. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go in the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. And there's a sweet confirmation here that David receives, after all that he arranged for his parents, he receives direction from the Lord. It is the exact thing that Saul is lacking completely from chapter 15 onwards in this book. David receives direction from the Lord. But the direction from the Lord is unusual. And the direction from the Lord says to David, David, don't stay in the stronghold. The stronghold would be the place naturally where he would feel more safe, where he would feel more protected. But a prophet of the Lord comes to David and says, don't stay here. Go back to the land of Judah. Get closer to where Saul is. And the significance of this detail is to give us on one side the assurance the Lord is with David. God's direction confirms to David that the Lord is looking after him. But at the same time, the Lord is challenging David to get out of what looks like in the moment a safer place. Is it possible, my dear friends, that what our calculations and expectations of what is good and safe for us in the moment is different what the Lord wants for us to do. Responding to God's guidance may not be what looks like the safest in the moment to our human standards. But responding to God's guidance is much safer than simply staying in what looks like a safe place for us. David goes on, moves back to the land of Judah, and then we find out that, that Saul <laughs> discovers him. It's not the safest thing sometimes to do God's odd appearing direction. But responding to God's guidance is, in the long run, the much safer thing to do than simply staying where it looks safer for us in the moment. Friends, I wonder if the Lord is calling you to do something that seems to dislodge you 
from what you consider to be safe. Perhaps you consider, humanly speaking, a, a place of safety, what may look like good and, 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 and appropriate for the moment. And perhaps the Lord is tugging at your heart to do something different. Consider that responding to the guidance of the Lord is ultimately the safer thing to do, even though in the short run it may look like a greater risk. So far, the author has kept the focus on what David has done as he began the journey as a runaway from Saul. We see him as a pilgrim in his own land, without safety for himself or for his family. He started off this journey with missteps. But nevertheless, in the Lord's kindness and mercy, the Lord provided for David. And we have seen the Lord give David these five provisions, supplies for the journey, favor with the enemies to escape from their traps, confirmation that he is the king of the land, favor to keep his parents in safety, and direction where to go. But there's something else that the Lord provided David with. It's an inspiration to write two psalms. The ability to trust in the Lord during these times and the inspiration to write about the, his, David's inner turmoil and his trust in the Lord as he struggled in the tumult of his tribulation, David wrote Psalms 34 and 56. And let me just read to you a few highlights from Psalm 34, which was read earlier in our service. Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Verses 12 and 13. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. I wonder if this is perhaps David's way of confessing that what he had done with Ahimelech was not the right thing. And he in this psalm is realigning his commitment to speak the truth. Or, or verse 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit, what a difference from the way Saul responded to his circumstances. And verses 19 and 20, the righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from all of them. He protects all his bones, not one of them will be broken. What a promise. When David wrote the psalm, the Lord inspired David to speak about the righteous person whose bones the Lord will protect and not let one of them be broken. Friends, in this moment, David is not talking about himself. This journey started with David falling short of God's righteousness. Yet the Lord nevertheless would send another righteous king. He truly was fully righteous, with no presence of sin in him whatsoever, at his crucifixion, we are told that he died early, the first one among those who were crucified alongside him. And when the Roman soldiers came to break the feet of those hanging on the crosses, they noticed that Jesus was already dead. So they did not break his feet. And the Apostle John tells us that that happened so that Scripture might be fulfilled. And that Scripture is this very psalm, not one of his feet will be broken. 
What this means, dear friends, is that David wrote Psalm 34, filled with lessons he has learned from his trials and weaknesses, but also confident about another righteous person whom the Lord will protect even in his death. Not merely protect from death, but protect him even in his death. And that person is none other than Jesus Christ. Friends, does that sound to you like an accident that is somehow uh, in just talking about David's own trials? No, the Lord is preparing David to be the path to point to Jesus Christ. And in these moments, David points the way to Jesus, not only in the fact that he received the bread of the presence of the Lord, but also in that the Lord protected his, his righteous servant to the point of none of his bones being broken even in his death. Oh, my dear friends, this is what David is pointing us to. He's pointing us to Jesus in his fugitive journey so that all who look to Jesus with faith and in repentance would be granted the righteousness of God and the protection of God. Oh, friends, if you have not turned to the Lord in faith and repentance, I want to encourage you today to look to him. David is a pointer to him. David is a, is a flawed king. And yet, what distinguishes David from Saul is not the absence of sin, but what he does in his sin. To turn to the Lord, to look to the Lord, to have confidence in what the Lord will do for him. And friends, it is that confidence that we call on you today to have if you would turn to the Lord. If you're letting your sin keep you from turning to the Lord, I encourage you today, turn to the Lord with your sin. Turn to the Lord in your sin. Bring your weaknesses and despair to the Lord, just as David has done. And in that, the Lord will free you from the burden of your sin. Let's pray.